23, I want to welcome you all to our Sheepgate Fellowship Sunday service. It's a pleasure to be with all of you as the Lord invites us to worship him in communion with him and with brother and sister this afternoon. It's a beautiful day. Uh, the weather is fantastic. And uh, more fantastic than that, of course, is the gospel of Jesus as we are in remembrance of it. So grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, as we come to him as he invites us. Let's rise from our seats and recite together the Apostles' Creed as we remember the tenets of our faith. The Apostles' Creed, uh, well, it should be on the screen if, uh, for those of you who need it. Let's recite it together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this afternoon as we worship God, um, our call to worship comes from Psalm 136, verses 1 to 3. If it helps, you can close your eyes to just focus on the words of the psalmist, and I think it will be quite evident as to what this psalmist is encouraging us to remember and reflect on as we come to God this afternoon. Psalm 136, verses 1 to 3. The text reads, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Amen. I think the psalmist is quite clear. On our end, uh, the verb that he uses is give thanks. Give thanks to him. Be thankful. Be grateful. Why? For he is good. And the, how do we know this? The character of God that he reminds us of is this. His loving kindness is everlasting. His loving kindness is everlasting. It's a wonderful truth to know that we have a Heavenly Father, a God, who is good, and that his loving kindness is everlasting. And that is ever more reason for us in all ages, of all, in all time, to worship God and to give thanks to him. Brothers and sisters, let's take this time to pray silently in our hearts as we worship this God of ours. Let's confess our sin before him and come before him with an attitude of repentance, thus an attitude of gratitude, gratitude of the cross of Jesus Christ upon which he died on our behalf. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 reads, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's remember this truth, and as we pray, confess our sins before him. Let's close our eyes and silently pray in our, in our hearts um, a prayer of confession of sin. Let us pray.
Proverbs 28, 13 reads, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. And of course, this compassion comes from our God alone. How grateful we ought to be for a God who has mercy and grace upon us to save us from the transgression and the wage of that transgression being death. So all praise be to God, for he sent his son to save us. I'd like to draw your attention at this time to the screen uh, where we will find question three of our Heidelberg Catechism. Question one and two are quite long. Question three is quite short along with the answer. Question three reads, from where do you know your sins and mercy? Where do you know your sins, so sin of your life, and mercy, the mercy of God? Where do we find this? And this is true as we read in the answer from the law of God. The law of God we find, of course, in the Old Testament uh, given uh, to Moses and ultimately all throughout the Torah as well as um, the rest of the Old Testament, we find many, many different categories of law, whether it be judicial or whether it be you know, based, you know, sabbatical laws or other laws, uh, sacrificial laws. Uh, but all of these laws are put in place or given to God's people uh, for the sake of the knowledge of one's sin. And then, of course, the holiness of God. And the holiness of God uh, and the character of God, as it becomes revealed to us and known to us, uh, reveals that his desire uh, through, that, uh, through his mercy and grace and his loving kindness is to have compassion upon his people, his elect, and ultimately save them from their transgression. So the knowledge of our sins and God's mercy comes from the law of God. Famously, people speak of the law of God being, that, being like that of a mirror that reflects our own selves um, to us so that we can know our blemishes and ultimately know, of course, the perfection and holiness of God. So I hope and pray uh, that knowledge of sin and God's mercy would be upon you and within you, and you would be certain of these things. Um, I'd like to read to you Romans 3.20 as evidence of such things. Paul writes, Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This time, I'd like to pray for us, and then our praise team will um, just lead us in a time of song and singing to our Lord. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, we come to you this day. As we do each week on the Lord's Day, we ask, O oh Lord, that firstly our attention would be undivided, that our focus would be completely set upon you. God, that our hearts would desire and long for you and yearn for you at this time. So much of our lives throughout the week, from Monday to Saturday, we live so distant from setting our sights upon you and dedicating our time to you and being focused and attentive to your teachings and your word and living a life that reflects the beliefs that as believers we have. Gracious God, would you remind us this day of the way we ought to live our lives? Would you remind us this day of the community that we are part of as a result of our union with Christ. Would you remind us this afternoon of the grace and mercy you have upon us, upon us, the loving kindness that is everlasting, that we ought to give thanks to you always, for you are good. The reminder to continuously confess our sins before you as we transgress constantly against you. To find hope and peace and comfort in the compassion and grace and mercy that you extend to us through the cross of Jesus Christ. Everything 
it accomplished and everything it continues to apply in our lives. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to worship like this together as a community, as the body of Christ and as the saints. And it's not just this church, but churches globally. That on this day, the church sings praise and reads the word and prays to you and just lifts hearts to you, Lord God. Would you be honored, lifted, and glorified? We thank you so much that your glory would one day be made known to all, that every knee will bow. And we ask at this time as we sing to you that you would look upon us cheerfully and with joy and receive our worship. We thank you and praise you and pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's rise from our seats as we sing to God.
continuing our sermon series on the gospel of mark and so for those of you who've been with us from the beginning of that of the series um, i'm sure this comes as no surprise to you uh, for those of you who are perhaps joining us for the first time uh, welcome and please turn to in your bibles mark chapter 6 verses 45 to 52 it's 45 to 52 last week we read of the feeding of the multitude the 5,000 by jesus and we, of course, observed what that miracle meant and means in the text. And, of course, compared it to the uh, feast prior to that, the feast in Herod's um, particular banquet, and that leading to the death of John the Baptist, the feeding of the 5,000, and how it points towards the death of Christ and, of course, what his body will mean to those who eat it. Today, we're in Mark 6. Um, it's a narrative or text that I'm sure... Many of you uh, will be familiar with Jesus walking on water. And so we'll try to together observe the and rely on the spirit, of course, to understand the text and what it means to teach us this afternoon. Mark 6, verses 45 to 52. This is the word of God. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. When he got into the boat with them, the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. 
for they had not gained any insight from the incidents of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Amen. This is the word of God. I'd like to pray before we begin. Um, I guess I haven't really done this every week so far, but I think it's appropriate as we go into the text today. Allow me to pray. Gracious God, this time we go to your word, your holy, inerrant word, and we ask, O oh Lord, that uh, what Mark has authored for us today, uh, what we just read together as a community, and what we observe in the text and see in the text and read from the text, that the truth of it would not uh, be lost to us this afternoon, but rather that the Spirit would work in our hearts and our minds to comprehend what it, what it is intended to teach us. And so God, without uh, human interference, without the interference of our thought, Rather, the Spirit interfering in us to understand this text, we rely on you, and we ask, O oh Lord, for this grace. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Our sermon is entitled, The I Am Among Us. The I Am Among Us. I remember seeing on someone's social media account many years back, I know a lot of Christians like to use their social media account to share Bible verses and inspiring quotes. I'm sure some people come to mind at this time. Um, and I remember many years back, uh, just scanning through, I don't know if it was Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or whatever was popular back then, many, many years ago now, uh, a clever little saying that this person shared with us. It was just a little graphic with a quote on it, and I thought it, it was quite amusing, and so I remember it, and in the moment, um, I just, you know, gave it a little chuckle, but it read, this particular post, it read this way, if I remember it correctly, we all need a lifeguard when life has us drowning in our struggles, but mine walks on water, is what they shared. I got a good chuckle out of it, as do many cheesy Christian sayings, whether it be on social media or on people's fridges. I love walking, I love doing visitations. I remember doing visitations, uh, not myself, but my father being a pastor, following him to visitations into people's homes, and people having Bible verses all over their, um, all over their house. I guess just, I don't know if it's for decoration or just a good room. I love it when you go to the washroom and there's like a really inspiring like Bible verse there. I don't know why uh, Koreans have a tendency to do that, but they love leaving it in the washroom. Um, but I remember going to one home and I remember it being like a really like great, you know, biblical passage or, or verse. Uh, only later in my life did I realize it was a really bad verse to put on your wall because it was one of the rebukes of Job's friends and it was just completely incorrect to say. <laughs> but anyways, um, such things, uh, of course, uh, are part of the contemporary Christian uh, life, if you will. Now, of course, everyone's going to go home now and start tearing down their walls with uh, Bible verses on them or, you know, making sure they're theologically correct. Uh, but, of course, such things, like the one we just read today or I, rem I am reminded of, the theology and Christology of such a quote is not really the aim of its author, I imagine, but just to inspire Christians through clever wording, right? The need for a lifeguard because he walks on water, all the drowning, like using that language, right? Now, I only bring this up to lead us um, into today's text. As my intention and aim today is to reveal to you the depth and meaning, the breadth, if you will, of this clearly famous episode of Christ walking on water. Now, we find that both Matthew and John, uh, both of them found it important in their own Gospels to also include this miraculous event. But Luke chose to omit it. In all three writings, Mark, Matthew, and John, we find the words of Christ consistently there. It is I, do not be afraid. But only in Matthew do we get the addition of Peter's walking on water as well. If you remember that particular element of this story. It's not here in Mark. 
Now, my focus today will be on those consistent words of the Lord Jesus, it is I. Three words that I hope will become words of solace, of foundation, of comfort and peace for you always as believers and knowing that the Lord Jesus truly is who he says he is. You see, the power of Christ in today's text is not simply on display through his walking on water, nor was it in his feeding of the multitude, per se, and not even in the calming of yet another treacherous wind and storm. The power of Christ that the believer can rest in, in today's verses, are these three words of Christ, it is I. Here's my reconstruction of that prior cheesy Christian saying, we all need a savior because we are drowning in the sin of our lives. My savior is the I am. I know, not perfect, but to the point. The thrust of today's sermon will be to compel you to understand that Jesus is the I am. Two points to today's sermon, the first being the call of the Son, verses 45 to 46, and then the second point, the great I am, verses 47 to 50. And then those last two verses I'll leave for the conclusion. But the first point, verses 45 to 46, the call of the Son. One of the more interesting aspects, and you're going to want to have your Bibles open, just just references it, just glance at it as we go through it. One of the more interesting aspects of today's passage is that it begins with Jesus' desire, desire to disperse the crowd that he has just miraculously fed. Now remember last week when we read the text, the disciples were the ones who wanted to disperse the crowd because they were hungry, or at least it was time for them to eat. And so they were saying, hey Jesus, let's let them go, find their own food so they can eat. But it's Jesus, out of his compassion, the one who keeps them, and he feeds them. After feeding them, now he wants to disperse them. It's time to go home. So it's peculiar. Jesus desired to disperse the crowd immediately after this miracle. As well as his disciples, he also wants to send them away. His wish is to be alone in solitude. And we find in these verses that the desire is really to want to pray. Now this may seem at first glance like a call to prayer, does it not? or at least a Christological modeling of the need to pray in the midst of ministry, which would not be untrue. It's not an untrue thing to say that. And I wouldn't blame you for reading the text in that way. Mark and Jesus certainly advocate for the petition of prayer in the life and ministry of the believer. But to read this passage and walk away with just that understanding would be to only scratch the surface of the text. The Greek word here, anakazo, meaning made, He made them disperse. In verse 45, when Jesus makes his disciples depart, is not so much an encouragement to move, but a demand to move. Jesus forces them to depart. Why? After having compassion on the crowd and hosting this banquet feast of his, why is Jesus compelled to have both his disciples and the crowd dispersed? This is where our understanding of messianic expectations, Roman sentiment, and biblical literacy will collide. Allow me to briefly cover each of these three things and then conclude with why this dispersion occurred and how that could help us identify the reason for Christ's prayer in solitude. So firstly, messianic expectations at the time um, and at this time from the Jews specifically, and especially those who were lower on the socioeconomic food chain, had the hopes of a king to come. To them, Messiah meant political king. 
Note that I mentioned king, not savior. It's interesting because believers today have a tendency to hear what when they hear Messiah? Savior. When you hear Messiah, typically the New Testament believer hears Savior. Not so much king. Regardless, at this time, the Jews were eager, on the opposite end, for a king, for a new king, for a Davidic king. Why? They wanted their land. They wanted their nation. They wanted their kingdom restored. Now, you can recall in the Old Testament, the promised land for Israel was so central to the Jewish identity with God's covenant with them. The land meant God's promise. The people of God living in the land of God. This was so critical. And who could restore their land but the heroic king that God would send? The king like that of David. Who could conquer a Goliath like Rome but David himself to give Israel its home back to them? This was the hope and messianic expectation that the majority of the Jewish people held to at this time. And their means of gaining this king, this political king that would restore their land, was to be strictly obedient to the laws of God. Because the reason they felt that they had lost this land, the reason they felt that Rome was able to conquer them, was because they were disobedient to the law. Simply put, their Messiah was a militant political king that would march them into battle against Caesar, a conqueror of land and not sin. Perhaps, commentators write, why Peter had a knife on the night of Jesus' arrest and why he was so eager to cut that Roman soldier's ear off. Secondly, if you couldn't tell, the sentiment against Rome at this time was nothing short of disdain. Remember how much they despised the tax collector? How much they despised King, uh, King Herod, right, the Tetrarch? How much they despise anyone who associates themselves with the Roman Empire or works for them and takes advantage of that system? The Jews did not like ha- not having their own land. And the culprit was Rome. It was Caesar. Rome, in their eyes, was an evil kingdom, a secular kingdom that was allowed to take their land, much like Babylon, because they had disobeyed God. Rome was a punishment to them. It was a daily reminder that God was punishing them for their disobedience to the law. Maybe not so bad in hindsight to know this and be reminded of one sin as we did you know, this afternoon as we started service to confess our sin and re- remind ourselves of our transgression. But certainly the reminder did not yield in these people the best of results for God's chosen people. They became legalistic, pharisaic. Roman sentiment was low and anyone who chose to align themselves with the empire was viewed as a traitor to people and to the faith. So with that in mind, that sort of context understood, we go to the Bible. So the Bible teaches us this, thirdly, the Messiah is indeed a king. Not a king in the sense that the Jews were expecting or hoping for. And he does indeed restore God's people under his rule, and he does in some sense restore the kingdom, the land, if you will. But the means that he will accomplish this is so contrary to the messianic expectations of the Jews of this time. The Bible tells us this, that this Messiah will win first by dying. Victory through the image of loss in the human perspective. That his victory will be a sinner's cross. That his conquest will be of the grave. And the enemy he destroys is not Rome, but human sin. So why is Jesus compelled to move the people away? 
in today's passage. Here's what commentators and theologians believe. Because after seeing what Jesus did for them, feeding them like that, right? What do you think the Jews thinking? This is manna from heaven. This is like the Old Testament. If this man is truly of God and sent by God and a prophet of God and a man of God, surely this is an image of the manna of the Old Testament, is it not? This is our march into the promised land. Is likely what they were thinking. They were ready to march into Rome that very day as long as Jesus compelled them to. But instead of marching to Rome, he asked them to march home. They wanted to make him king immediately. How do we know this? Just read your Bible. John 6, 15. It says right there, they were immediately eager to make him king. But the king he was, and we know Jesus is king, and the king uh, that he is, was not the type of king that these people wanted. So instead of yielding to their urges, Jesus disperses them. And the safest means to do so was by first dispersing his own disciples. Why? Well, the 12 were viewed as leadership, if you will, at that particular gathering. And dispersing them meant the crowds would follow suit. And in that aloneness, as soon as these people are dispersing away from Christ, as he's riled up and people are trying to make him this political figure, Jesus is calm. Just as later he will calm the storm, he calms this storm first. And he goes into a place of privacy. Privacy with God the Father. And I wonder, I wonder what his words of prayer might have been. There are three instances in the Gospel of Mark in which Jesus prays in solitude. And in all three instances, you can read them, the prayers are done at night, they're done in private. The disciples are removed. Disciples are failing to grasp his mission. And in each, Jesus is facing some sort of distress or crisis. Here's James Edwards, and he suggests in his commentary on the Gospel of Mark this. Jesus reaffirms by prayer his calling to express his divine sonship as a servant rather than as a freedom fighter against Rome. I tend to agree. Second point, the great I am. Verses 47 to 50. Now with the calling secured and reaffirmed in the Son of God and his divine sonship, not reaffirmed, but reaffirmed for us in some sense, I, I suppose, he turns back to his disciples, to the twelve, and he goes to them. But where Jesus had them go in the prior verses is not where we find them. Their intended destination was Bethsaida, right? On the other side of the Galilee. But along the way, they get caught in a fierce wind or storm. Historians note that the description of this storm in the text, a great wind against them, is likely the well-known easterly wind called Sharkia. It was so devastating, it had its own name. Sharkia is literally where we get the English word shark. Mark describes the disciples as straining at the oars. Straining. That's an odd descriptor, if you will, in terms of what they were doing. The word for straining in Greek is a Greek word, basanizo, 
which is typically only used by Mark to describe the torment of being possessed by a demon. The word means to be tested, like how stones are rubbed against each other, gold and silver, to detect their purity, or to apply torture, or sometimes this word is used to describe harassment. This is a word of great pain being applied. In Mark's gospel, you should recognize by now that any time the disciples are found separate from their master, Jesus, they are in great distress of some sort. Where in Matthew's gospel, we see Peter looking away from Jesus and falling into the water as a result of lacking faith in him. Here, the disciples are on the water in distress as their master is on shore and away from them. A subtle difference, of course, but the focus and the lesson, perhaps, is the same. That apart from Christ, we are in distress. We are Basanizo. The fourth watch would have been between 3 to 6 a.m. at night, according to the Roman system of timekeeping. Not exactly a time you want to be out on the water. It's a good time to play Valorant, very bad time to be on shore in the Galilee. Let alone do you want to be in this darkness facing a great wind. Now consider there's no electricity too. It's completely dark. But it is this very scenario that sets up the miracle of this passage, if you will. Jesus goes to them in that darkness, in that distress. Now, many have tried in church history to lessen or rationalize or make sense of this impossible action of Christ, him walking on water. But to try to humanize or rationalize or normalize this occurrence would be, in essence, to forfeit the very teaching of these passages. Certainly, Matthew and John saw no reason after reading Mark's gospel to, in their later written gospels, to change anything. It's almost word for word the same, in fact, as if they copied from Mark, which is Matthew's inclusion of the Peter instance. We can be certain that Jesus did indeed walk on water that night. Should it surprise you that the Son of God walks on water? And his objective was to go to his disciples. Now remember, Jesus in his prayer has just reaffirmed his mission as the Son of God. And although he took on flesh, this is still God in flesh. Truly God, truly man. We've talked about this a lot in our confession study. And as he walks to them, they cry out, Phantasma! And that's not Greek for fantastic. It's not. It means, that's a ghost! That's scary. It's an apparition. How wrong they are. For the words of Christ that follow, their phantasma cry, are these words. Ego eimi. The very words spoken by God through the burning bush to Moses in Exodus 3.14, I am who or that I am. The words in John's gospel that shape the telling of his narrative of Christ and his gospel and forms the entire template of John's gospel. He states, of course, the seven ego amy statements, the seven I am's. Here they are. Jesus, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Ego amy. Christ is not only walking on water, to demonstrate yet again his supernatural power and authority over nature. 
That should already be understood at this point in Mark's gospel. But his self-declaration today reinforces to his 12 and to us today that he is not just an earthly king with great power, that if he desired, he could surely take over Rome, but that he himself is the very God found in the Old Testament revealed to Moses and revealed to every other patriarch after, that he is truly God among them, that that God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is now before them. He is Emmanuel, God with us, the great I am, the great ego me, with his people. And what a blessing it is to know that in our distress, in our straining in life, in desperate need of a savior from our sin, that God came to us. And through miracle, saves us. If you are sitting here today and you are a believer of Jesus Christ, if the Spirit has worked in you to regenerate your heart, to have faith and trust and hope in Him, brother and sister, your life is nothing short but a, of a testimony of the miracle of Christ. A testimony of Emmanuel. The last two verses I would like to touch on in my conclusion for today. But before we get there, let's quickly rewind to verse 48, where we find a peculiar detail. And perhaps some of you are like, I wish Max explained that, and I'm going to do it now. Jesus intended, it reads in that verse, not only to walk to his disciples on water in their distress, he intended, according to Mark, to pass by them. Isn't that odd? Now, why would that be? Knowing clearly that his disciples were straining in danger, in fact, and knowing what we know of Jesus, that he has compassion over his people, he had power to calm the storm, he had power to save them, the lesson would be fitting, would it not? Apart from Jesus, there are storms in life, death inevitable. With Jesus, there is salvation. What an easy sermon. But there it is in verse 48, a little wrench, if you will. It reads, he intended to pass by them. Now skeptics will say, see, Jesus is just... He's not there to save them. He's not walking to them to help them. He's walking to them to just say hi and then walk by, right? So many sermons I've heard on this text and no explanation of that particular detail. Pastors seem to intend to pass by, the pass, passing by of Jesus. I don't intend to be one of them. Many commentators and theologians have noted the parallels of Jesus' earthly life and ministry to the exodus of Israel from slavery in Egypt. There are many things that seem to overlap in the narratives. So the, you can say, in some sense, that the narrative of the Exodus that we find in the Pentateuch is really a pointer to Christ. In fact, we could say that about everything in the Old Testament, that it points to Christ. But there are distinct parallels that are quite obvious and cannot be ignored by any keen Bible reader. So there are many things that seem to overlap, and we need to be keen in understanding these details. Such as what? Christ's wilderness temptations before his ministry, paralleling the wandering of Israel in the desert before entering the promised land. Now in today's text, we have the so-called insiders of Christ, the disciples, in immense distress away from him, separate from him. They are on water. Jesus is coming down from a mountain, and the visible miracle involves God defying the element of water to go to his people in distress, right? 
That's the visible miracle. The visible miracle that we see in today's text and we remember in our minds involves God defying the element of water and the physical nature of it to go to his people who are in distress and save them from certain disaster. They cannot comprehend what is going on. How could it be that this man is walking on water? But they are indeed saved from their immediate peril. And Jesus reveals in that moment, through that saving, from that work, that miraculous work of his, that he is God. This reminds me immensely of what? Israel at the edge of the Red Sea in Exodus 14. The people of God in great fear and distress as Pharaoh's chariots are just roaring towards them to kill them or to at least take them back as their slaves. In such great distress and fear that they complain to Moses. They go to him even, being after, uh, even after being slave, uh, saved from slavery and rejoicing in that blowing trumpets, taking gold, just rejoicing that day. That day was really pooped on in that moment, wasn't it? Because the Pharaoh has a change in heart, and he's like, never mind, let's go get him back. And they're roaring towards him, and Israel on the edge of the sea is like nowhere to go. All they see is this global uh, power, military rushing towards them. And they go to Moses, their leader, and they ask him why he brought them out there to die. Was this the plan? To just bring us out here? Yeah, sure, you freed us from slavery. We're just going to die in the desert? Oh my goodness, life would have been so much better back in Egypt as slaves. And Moses says these words to them. As you read in Exodus 14, he says, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today... You will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. It's a really Christian way of saying, shut up. You know the rest of that story. Moses stretches out his hand and the Lord divides the sea, providing a miraculous means of salvation and safety. Not only that, he closes the sea on the chariots of Pharaoh and destroys their forces completely. The people of God, brothers and sisters, whether it be then or now, are preserved, and the enemy is destroyed. Even after seeing ten plagues unleashed on Egypt, at the point of fear and at the face of death, those people, the people of God, lacked faith in God. Just like the disciples in the boat today. So what does the passing by mean? What does that mean? Well, remember, when Moses was put into the cleft of a rock at Mount Sinai and the Lord's glory passed by him so as to reveal to Moses his name, his beauty, and his majesty. Remember 1 Kings 19 at Mount Horeb where God reveals his presence to Elijah by passing by him. Read that chapter today. It's fantastic. It's spectacular. Or perhaps some of your minds go to Job chapter 9 where it is so explicit the imagery of the Old Testament being revealed to us in today in Mark 6. Job 9, verses 8 and 11 read, Who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea? Were he to pass by me, I would not see him. Were he, were he to move past me, I would not perceive him. And that's the disciples, isn't it? So what does this passing by mean to us? Jesus has already said it, hasn't he? It is I, do not fear. And his actions, 
are to reveal and support that claim. The God of the Old Testament that you believe is before you. And I'm here that you would know who I am and that you, had, and that you would have salvation. Chapter 9 of Job is all about the immense difference between God and humanity. Things that are uh, only of God. He alone possesses the ability to do things that humans cannot even fathom. So when our Lord walks on water, yes, you should marvel and be amazed. But the more amazing revelation that ought to come to you is that the Lord is among us. Jesus walking on water, if you know he is God, is nothing extraordinary to him. Expect the unexpected from God, but marvel that he comes to us, that he reveals himself to us, that he walks among us. It is when you come to know Jesus as he intends to be known and as he intends to reveal to his beloved as the Son of God, that is when you will go from not gaining insight and having hardened hearts like the disciples in verse 52 to having faith and trust and hope in him and ultimately loving him, being in reverence of him who came to us, of him who died for us, of him who rose from the grave, of him who ascended into the heavens, and of him who will come again to judge all. It is faith in this Jesus that will save you, not from the distress of life, but from death itself. So praise be to Jesus who saves us, the greatest of all lifeguards. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the text today. I hope that the sermon, as constructed, was of assistance in understanding what your word intends to teach. And I hope that what was taught was of you and that the word itself would remain in the hearts and minds of those here today. Bless us, O Lord. Although we do not deserve it, we stand in awe and in gratitude of the continual blessings of your grace and mercy. And we thank you for Jesus. All as we pray in his name. Amen. Let's take a moment to reflect on what we've learned today and then we'll respond in song together as we sing. Let's rise from our seats and sing together as we respond to God's blessing.
Continue to prosper and grow, and be able to be great uh, beacons of hope in a city so dark. We thank you so much, and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated, brothers and sisters. First of all, welcome. I just have a few announcements. I'm gonna zip through them because there are there are quite a few. So bear with me. Firstly, welcome to Sheepgate. It's your first time. We welcome you. We hope to get to your know your name, at least, and uh, just how you got here. We'd like to hear your story, and uh, if there's any uh, questions you have about our church considering attendance at this church we'd love to connect with you in some way just thank you for being with us uh, we have some members who are unfortunately feeling ill or sick currently covid is still going around so people are just uh, safely staying home but if you're tuning in welcome offerings uh, we do have a basket in the back so you can write your name on the envelope and give that way um, i think that's probably the best mode of offering if possible but i do understand um, that if if digital is your preference. So we do have an e-transfer set up for sheepgatefellowship at gmail.com. And so you can give your offering that way as well. 
We are supporting some missionaries both locally and abroad, uh, specifically in Turkey. Uh, so if you'd like to give towards those missionaries, just uh, uh, make sure you just note that in the note section. Finance team will take note of that. Please join us uh, for fellowship. Unfortunately, today, we do not have food provided. So if this is your first Sunday with us, this is the lowest of lows. Uh, next week will be the highest of highs. Uh, I'll explain briefly why. Uh, but today, unfortunately, our CAM, um, they g- we have one of our... Uh, um, one of our senior members, she is returning back to Korea, so she hosted them for lunch today, and so they weren't able to prepare food for us, so they just graciously asked that we purchase our own food for today, if that's okay. Um, I hope that's okay. Please don't hate us for that. Um, prayers and blessings to our travelers. We still have, uh, I mean, the Wongs and Sasha are back, as well as I think uh, Hannah is returning today, and we have some people who are leaving today. For example, Ivy's going to London randomly, right? So she's going to UK. Uh, I don't know. We just have a bunch of people all over the world all the time. And then the island boys are still in Hawaii, and they're just having a fun time. So um, hopefully, you know, we see them soon. But we have a bunch of travelers, uh, so just keep them in prayer as we travel. Hopefully, keep them to us in one piece. Um, This past week, I had a chance to be classmates with our church members. Uh, So the five of us took a class on Reformed Worship and Polity with Chad Van Dixorn, who is the author of our Confessing the Faith book, right? So uh, Westminster, now RTS prof. Um, Yeah, just a fantastic class where we got to learn some incredible things. And so um, I think we'll be sharing some of these things as we move forward and think through things together as a church. I think it's a great opportunity to continue to learn and grow. So as these opportunities come up to audit courses and et cetera, um, yeah, I'll just continuously announce them and give you opportunity to partake in this as well. Especially your alumni, those who don't go to school anymore, auditing is great. It's cheap. You take a great class, and you don't have to write any papers, and you don't get graded. It's like the best of both worlds. Um, so if you'd like to attend next time, please let us know. Uh, I'll keep announcing them. And I, think our, I think the feedback generally was quite good. On the confessions, uh, we, are con- we are going to continue um, into chapter 9. Now, chapter 9 is of free will. So today, if you, uh, during lunch, um, as we kind of disperse, I guess I'm like Jesus today. I'm like dispersing you away, right? As you disperse today, don't, first of all, don't get in a boat. Uh, but secondly, go to a restaurant, and if you are eating together or whatever, or if you get your food and you come back to church, I would recommend today in your groups just reading over uh, the first few paragraphs of chapter 9. Uh, I was going to start uh, next Sunday, but I'm about to announce something that prevents me from doing that. So it's going to be two weeks from now. We're going to commence our study in the Confessions. And what we're going to do is post-service, so post this time together, we're going to stay here in this building and just have like a 25 to 30 minute session where we engage each other on the paragraphs that we are reading in the Westminster Confession of Faith. I think it'll um, shorten our time but it, it will require for you to read the paragraphs ahead of time and contemplate them. And so I'll send some blurbs and other information for you to consider. And then just with people around you where you're sitting in the sanctuary. Now your seating selection in the sanctuary is critical, right? Who you're around will be critical in terms of determining who you discuss these things with. Uh, so if someone is sitting alone and everyone's avoiding them, you know why. Uh, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but um, if we're all, uh, we'll just, where we are seated, grouped together, and it has short discussions post-service on the confession of faith, and then bleed that into our lunchtime, where in our lunch you know, tables, we can continue our discussions on that. So I think it's just a way for us to engage with the material, uh, but kind of lessen sort of the load of it, but also allow us to engage with it throughout the week. So I hope that makes sense. Uh, I'll talk about it more as we continue on, um, probably next week. 
Speaking of next week, June 11th, I was supposed to announce this last Sunday, but I completely forgot, um, is a barbecue. The reason being, um, it's our church anniversary. No, you don't have to clap. It's not our anniversary yet. Um, if you're clapping because of barbecue, well, you didn't clap during the sermon, so I don't know what's going on. Um, anyways, we'll ha- be having a barbecue uh, at a park nearby. It's just around the corner, so Shepherd and Kiel, you just go a little bit west, and there's going to be a park. Our KM congregation is going to go there right after following their service, and they're going to start preparing everything, uh, which kind of leads me to the question of maybe we should just go at that time and just have our service outdoor and uh, just spend some time uh, in worship there, and then it'll just allow us to help with all the preparation because uh, I can't imagine you know a bunch of 50, 60-year-olds barbecuing for us in this sweltering heat is a wise idea. Um, so we'll see how it goes, but I'll send the details soon. Uh, but just know that. So there might be a time and location adjustment just for next week's service, just due to the variables. Um, so I am leaning towards that, but I will let you know. Uh, likely, we will not have service in this particular building at this particular time next Sunday, uh, just so we can help with those things ASAP. I hope that makes sense. Um, and then I was, I was actually driving Liz home yesterday, and I was like, oh my goodness, it's so great that the Island Boys are not back because we're going to have so much extra food. And then I realized they are back. And so we're going to have to feed them, which, which really, you know, I went from like high to a low. But anyways, um, I will send those details very soon. Another detail, in the month of June and leading into the end of summer, uh, I will be doing two things. One, return of our weekly Bible studies. Um, so our continuation of the Gospel of John, that's coming back. Um, very soon, probably within the next two weeks. And then secondly, visitations. Um, so throughout the month, or throughout the uh, season, the summer season, I'll be visiting all of you, hopefully, <laughs> uh, getting to know you and sharing with you some of the updates and details about what I discussed last year in regards to our denominational uh, choice and selection, all those things. Some of you had questions as to why we're kind of leaning PCA, etc. Uh, so I'd like to share with that with you on a personal level. And the blessed thing is, this time, I have a wife, so I can take Liz with me. Uh, so it's much better. I think it'll be much more fun for you and less awkward, right? Um, it's like, oh, Max is meeting me. Like, uh, right? Now Liz will be there, so it's much better. Um, so praise God for that. So just keep that in mind. Uh, so I'll probably release like a form or something soon for you to select a time. Uh, I'd love to be hosted at your house if possible. Uh, if not possible, we'll meet outside and whatever. But um, that, I think, would be the best sort of thing. If you're a newcomer to the church, I'd love to host you at our place and just have you come to our place and uh, we will feed you and uh, we'll be able to worship together and just get, you know, introduce the church to you, I think, uh, on a deeper level. So just keep that in mind. It's not, visitations are not daunting. I'm not going around rebuking everyone, although if you need rebuke, I may rebuke you. But anyways, uh, that's visitations. And I'd love to get feedback on the church as well. Final thing, there's a softball game today. In fact, there's two. We have back-to-back games today. Uh, Centennial Park, if you'd like to join us, 5 p.m. till whenever, right? I think it's about 7.30. Uh, so if you'd like to come and sit in the sun and watch some really bad baseball or softball, uh, up to you how you use your time. With that said, brothers and sisters, all those announcements are done. Let's rise from our seats and end off with the Lord's Prayer. Let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom, the power, 
glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, thank you, everyone. Enjoy, you know, just a brief time of greeting one another in the Lord. And then uh, when you're able, you can go get food and then come to our other building and eat together, whatever you'd like. <laughs>